0: Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew
1: Ginter and Nate Nelson, sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Welcome listeners to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm sitting here with Andrew Ginter. He is the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions, and he is going to introduce the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, how are you?
2: I'm very well, thank you, Nate. Our guest today is Joe Weiss. Joe is the managing partner at Applied Control Solutions, and he's a pioneer of industrial cybersecurity. Joe is a managing director with the ISA SP99 group. SP99 develops the well-known IEC 62443 series of industrial security standards, and Joe was part of the beginning of the industrial security field in the early days at EPRI, the Electric Power Research Institute. Joe has written widely, he's spoken widely on industrial security, so it's great to have him on the podcast. Joe's topic today is securing level zero and level one devices in industrial control systems with examples from the DHS Aurora demonstration.
1: And before we get to my interview with Joe, I'd just like to mention something up top that we reference a certain video in the course of our interview. You can find that video by just googling Aurora test footage and you'll see a picture of a big generator. I recommend for our listeners to see this video before listening to the following interview as we do make reference to it. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Joe. Joe, before we get into the crux of our interview today, I'd like to ask first a technical question. Um, What do protective relays do, and what are they good for?
0: Okay, protective relays are there to sense uh, uh, out-of-range conditions, whether it's voltage, current, frequency... And what they do then is they act like circuit breakers in your house. They basically open up and interrupt the flow of electricity. And they will be for different things. They could be for motor protection, they could be for line protection. There's a whole slew of them.
2: So, Nate, let me add to that very briefly. What Joe didn't say is that in the modern world, these protective relays are computers, computers that are electrically connected to physical sensors in the power grid their job is to sense fault conditions and trip a breaker to prevent damage to equipment Um, you know the, the the cyber connection here is that if you tamper with the relays you've impaired the ability of the system to protect equipment and the next time there's a fault like i don't know a lightning strike you risk equipment damage
1: What was the 2007 Idaho National Lab's Aurora Generator Test?
0: The test was to show that you could use cyber to cause physical kinetic damage. And the way they were going to do that is to use something that's known to all, or should be known to all, basically, electrical engineers that you never restart alternating current equipment out of phase with the electric grid. And so what Aurora was, was simply to remotely open a breaker, which is where the cyber comes in, and then reclose it out of phase so your sine waves are out of phase. And what they do is they cause a very large torque and a very large current spike which will damage or destroy AC roti- rotating equipment or damage electric transformers.
1: Andrew, quick clarification point. Um, this notion of being out of phase, what does that mean and why is it important to Aurora?
2: Well, when we're thinking about the the power grid, we're looking at alternating current, and you know, if you remember from your high school, uh, you know, science classes, alternating current, you know, looks if you if you look at the the voltage and the the current flow, they look like a sine wave. It goes up and down. Now, the, the you know, the electrons move out and then they come back, and they they they, they do this back and forth. And you know, um, what happens is if you've got you've got an engine that's rotating or a. Ter- uh, 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 a generator that's rotating, it's rotating in time with the current. You know, every rotation or fraction of a rotation, I forget how it's synchronized, is synchronized with this up and down back and forth current that happens 60 times a second. If you foolishly connect the power grid to rotating equipment and it's out of phase, it's in the wrong, it's in the wrong point of the rotation you know the power grid always wins it is enormously powerful and it forces the device back into the correct portion of the rotation within a, a matter of milliseconds this is the torque that that uh, joe was talking about it puts enormous force on the on the device you risk physically bending or damaging or breaking parts of the device and it, it forces enormous current You know, number of electrons through your uh, the the conductors in the device, and you risk heating it up, and you know, burning out insulation and and nasty stuff like this. So this is why you know, having large rotating equipment like these these big generators are like a hundred tons. Having them in the right position when you connect to the grid um, is enormously important.
1: And in that video of the test, um, you can see the generator sort of jump very quickly. Is that what we're talking about when we're talking about torque?
2: Absolutely. Torque is force, and that jump, the vibration, is the uh, the physical manifestation of, enor- of an enormous force being applied to that couple of tons of rotating metal. Okay,
1: let's get back to Joe.
2: What provided the impetus for that experiment, and
1: who conducted it?
0: Okay. The impetus was that DHS had been doing a number of, uh, if you will, vulnerability demonstrations, opening and closing relays, um, uh, having opening valves and having water drip on the floor, and it just didn't get anywhere. Industry just basically kind of. Ho-hum. So it turns out the Idaho National Lab went to both DOE and DHS to say, hey, here is a way of uh, using cyber to cause kinetic damage. And DHS thought it was a good thing for whatever reason. Only DOE can explain. DOE didn't. And so DHS conducted this test. at the Idaho National Engineering Lab. Now, Joe, we're
1: going to be directing listeners before they listen to our conversation here to watch the video of the Aurora test that's online right now. Um, Can you tell everybody what's going on in this video?
0: Yeah, it turns out that CNN cut a tape. This is probably in the, I'm not sure the exact, Date, But it was probably mid, mid to late summer of 2007. And you can go to CNN, you know, just Google CNN Aurora vulnerability test. And what it shows is the diesel generator basically shaking and then smoking. And so they showed essentially the final depth spiral of that diesel generator.
1: So I need a bit of clarification here. Um, The video footage that we can see online, is that the footage as it was presented to CNN by DHS, or was that CNN's cut of the original footage? I suppose that my larger question is, to what extent does this video map onto the reality of what happened in 2007?
0: Yes, it does. The... CNN Aurora tape, as best as I'm told, was put together for CNN by DHS. And so it presents a particular story of what occurred. We had also had the original Aurora test played at one of my conferences. And they are... A bit different. The CNN tape makes it appear as if this is a virus or malware attack, because you could see fingers flying over the keyboard. Aurora is not a virus or malware. Aurora is a physics condition, and the only thing that cyber played a role in was causing the grid to be put into this out of phase, dangerous condition. And then physics did the rest.
1: So this video is aired. Um, how did the security community? How did the people who were watching CNN respond? And then as as a second question, how did NERC respond to the results of this experiment?
0: I'm going to give you the answers, but you also didn't ask one other question that I'm going to go through, and that is, how did the protective relay community respond? It turned out that NERC, for whatever reason I can't explain, downplayed the significance of the test. NERC put out an advisory on Aurora that was not public. It's basically a confidential report. But one of the things that's in that report was that it said if you have any digital protective devices, in other words, protective relays, that could be subject to Aurora, that they would then become a NERC critical cyber asset. You had to go through all of the NERC um, audit procedures. Well, the utilities became very, very, very concerned because a large utility could have on the order of, say, 15 to 20,000 relays. And this affects both transmission and distribution. There's no difference. It's physics, okay? And so what happened was, for whatever reason, both NERC and the utilities pushed back hard. To this day, it turns out that DOD recognized, as the DOE, excuse me, not DOE, DHS. DOE was pretty much silent throughout, and has been silent on this to this day. Uh, but the Idaho National Lab and DHS put together a spec for relay vendors to build a device that would prevent the Aurora phenomena from causing, you know, a major grid disaster. I mean, it's not a disturbance. This is where you damage or destroy equipment. And so they went out to the different relay vendors and, and, and said, can you build this and gave them the specs? Turns out only one vendor initially came forward, and that happened to have been Cooper, and they had come up with what was called the IGR-933, which was called the Rotating Equipment Isolation Device, the Reed Relay. And Cooper bought, built a whole bunch. DOD procured a number, goodly number. DOD wanted to make sure that critical substations, substations serving you know, critical DOD locations, would be protected from Aurora. So DOD was willing to work with the utilities and provide these relays to them for free. Nice number, free.
1: Right, I'm gonna stop you there because we're going to be getting to that portion of the story a bit later in the interview. But for now, I wanna ask you a slightly different question, which is the Aurora story is, is known today. The information is out there. So why do you think it's still so shrouded in confusion and conspiracy?
0: I wish I had a good answer. But before I do that, I want to go back to one other point. The Aurora test was developed by a world-class protective relay engineer. And DHS did a really good job of making sure that this test was a good, real, viable test. The unintended consequence was, because this test was called cybersecurity, it went out to the cybersecurity community and not to the protective relay community. So the protective relay community was completely unaware of what occurred. The cybersecurity community who weren't weren't really protective relay engineers didn't understand the significance. So we have that culture gap ongoing.
1: So Joe just covered a lot of information there. I think that listening back to the recording now, it was pretty funny that he basically said, you know, you forgot a question, you forgot to ask um, about the protective relay people and when i was interviewing joe i didn't realize that protective relay people was a category in this conversation so i think that that might um it might almost get to a larger point here which is that you know when we're talking about this aurora test it may not be that the information about the test is itself confusing or that there's any conspiracy around it it's just that when the information came out and how it came out Um, it was received by people who didn't necessarily have the tools to interpret it in the correct way, that maybe the information is fine. You know, there's a reason why we call this the Industrial Security Podcast and not the Yoga Podcast, is because we know exactly who we want to talk to. Could that really be at the heart of why Aurora is still shrouded in some mystery today?
2: Well, part of the problem is that the test was carried out and the results and the details were flagged as for official use only. Um, the details were then shared with cybersecurity people, not with protection engineers. And the conclusion, the, you know, the conclusion was that the the power grid was vulnerable to attack. This conclusion was so new to a lot of people that that things got confused. I mean, in a a 2009 Department of Defense document, now this is a document that was for public consumption, mind you, not classified, not for official use only. This is a couple of years later. A Department of Defense document says, you know, because of the widespread interest, the Aurora thing moved up the chain of command within the U.S. government very quickly. It moved into the hands of non-technical people. When these non-technical people provided briefings to even higher-level people, they got some of the technical details wrong. And some of those higher-level people then started talking to the press, which spread the inaccuracies, and the result was a lot of confusion. It seemed to take years for the information about Aurora to get into the right people's hands. I mean, I remember one of Joe's conferences. I think it was... 2015, 2014, 2015, he had the protection engineer speaking. This is the guy who brought the the Aurora problem, the synchronization problem. He brought the problem to the attention of the DHS. This was the engineer speaking. This is the same person who was eventually given the contract by the, the DHS, given the contract to buy and assemble all the equipment and carry out the Aurora test or the Aurora demonstration, if you prefer. He was talking at Joe's conference, and he said it was years later that he was allowed to show the details of Aurora to a room full of protection engineers at a conference on protection engineering. He says that when he put up the circuit diagram for the test, he says the majority of the room leaned forward, put their fingers up and said, you need another protective relay right there. They could see the problem right away. There was no conspiracy theory in their minds. The problem was obvious to them. Different groups had very different reactions to Aurora. Okay, now I'd like to
1: take everything we've just discussed and use it to inform what I'm about to ask you, which is, what, in your opinion, Joe, is wrong with how we're approaching OT security today?
0: Two things. Number one, what is OT? OT was a term that, as best as I can tell, was coined by Gartner, and it was a term that was meant to address, quote-unquote, everything that wasn't IT. But what OT really is, is the networks associated with the control system. You'll notice I didn't say it was the control systems; It was not the turbines the pumps, the valves, the relays. It was the networks for all of those. So what happened was this IT-OT convergence that you keep hearing about are different forms of networks. And what's who's defining what as being IT and who's defining what as being OT? The actual turbines, pumps, valves, heat exchangers, compressors, relays, you name it, sensors, are not really OT. They are engineering systems. The people responsible for them, the turbine engineer, the instrument engineer, the manufacturing engineer, the relay engineer, they do not consider themselves to be OT. So our gap is not... IT, OT, our gap, which is not only wide, but getting wider, not narrower, wider, is networking, whether you're IT or OT, in a sense, versus engineering. And part of the issue is the engineers, you know, the, the, if you will, the electrical, mechanical, nuclear, engineers have been effectively divorced from the cybersecurity world, and that has to change.
1: Joe made a, a passing reference early on in his answer there. Um, who was Gartner?
2: Well, everyone in the in the IT world knows Gartner. On the industrial side, maybe not. Gartner's an industry analyst. They are the, uh, the, the Gartner group. They are the leading analysts for the IT industry. Um, These are the the, the people who invented the the magic quadrant concept to compare vendors of different kinds of products in the IT space. In about 2005, one of their analysts coined the term ITOT integration. You and I and lots of other people on this podcast have talked a lot about about ITOT integration. But to Joe's point, he said that the Gartner Group uh, invented the term operations technology in 2005 in this in my recollection in this ITOt prediction that they made now i can't verify that but i do know that that's about when i started hearing about it so so he's probably right
1: more than a few guests on our show have talked about how in an increasingly digitally interconnected world it and ot or if we want to call it networking and engineering, have to come together. It sounds like you may have some issue with this line of discourse. Is it that we haven't been doing this the right way, or that the fundamental premise is harmful?
0: No, it's kind of a definition issue. And that is, and by the way, this goes all the way from the vendors to the end users. This is not... A, an end-user problem. This is the same problem in every vendor, okay? And that is, yes, there is more and more, quote-unquote, electronic communication between systems. But the building of a pump, a valve, a relay, a sensor, is still an engineering issue. It is never going to be an IT issue. Never. What will be the IT issue is the networking of the data coming from, to or from those devices. But there is a reason you become an electrical, mechanical system, nuclear, whatever, engineer, and you learn how a, you know, how a, say, a pressure, differential pressure sensor works. That is always going to be engineering. The communications will be that OT element. And that's what's missing.
1: You know, I personally could use some clarification on that very last statement of yours. Um, are you saying that IT and OT are one category and then the other category is engineering?
0: Yes, that's the point that's missing. Because no matter what you do with this IT-OT convergence, that has nothing to do how you build, say, a resonant frequency sensor or a, a variable frequency drive. That's engineering. That's going to always be there. The new thing is, how do you connect them? You know, that's where the quote unquote ITOT piece comes in.
2: You know, Nate, I really like what Joe just said. Um, he's made the distinction between. Three disciplines, as opposed to the usual two. You know, the the Gartner folks, uh, when they coined the phrase IT-OT integration, they were focused on IT, and OT was sort of other. It was a, a code name for all that other stuff that currently isn't IT. And what Joe's pointed out is that there's really two classes of other stuff in operations. There's the higher level stuff uh, in you know the Purdue model, the stuff that's closest to the IT network. Um, you know. This stuff is running IT systems, it's running Windows, it's running relational databases, it's using all of the infrastructure that that IT systems use. And deeper into the the Purdue model, deeper into those layers of of networks, you come across the engineering stuff. And the engineering stuff is managed very differently. And this is the essence of the ITOT problem. Um, The essence of the problem is that engineers manage for a different kind of risk. IT teams routinely manage for business risks. They manage for the risk of a lawsuit because we leaked, uh, you know, confidential pri- private information into the internet. the 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 risk of, um, you know, business business risks associated with information. Engineers are not focused on business risks. They are focused on physical risk. They're focused on preventing casualties. They're focused on preventing environmental disasters. And the discipline that they use to manage their networks um, is different from the discipline used to manage IT networks, you know, because they're focused on different risks. And as a result, the, the engineering networks tend to be more vulnerable than OT or IT networks. And this is the problem this is why we have a podcast. This is why we're talking about industrial security. It means that if a bad guy starts out on the internet, you know, and, you know, manages to to break through the heavily defended IT network and work their way into the OT network, eventually finding the engineering network, once they get into the engineering network, um, it's a soft target. You know, they've got a couple of, they've got a, a journey to go to, to get to that network. But once they get there, it's a soft target. And this is, this is the problem that, that we've run into is these two disciplines. I really like his, the, the way he phrased this.
1: I thought the reason we have an industrial security podcast is because it pays so well.
2: <laughs> yes, well, I wish. So do you.
1: <laughs> All right, but to play devil's advocate for a moment, um, what's the use in talking about definitions? Shouldn't we be more focused on how to fix our problems in practice. So maybe what I'm asking you, Joe, is what about defining these terms in the correct way is necessary to solving the problems that we're talking about, which, by the way, we're going to get to in a few minutes here.
0: Because those definitions have kept people out. That's why. And it's led to this, not just culture problem, but major governance problem. The governance problem is that the engineering, or if you will, operations and maintenance parts of the company have effectively been removed from cybersecurity. And that has to change. It's their equipment. Bear with me one second. Let me give an analogy. If you're having a stent put in or some type of operation on your heart, Would you be willing to have the network people who are putting in all of the communication into the operating room do the operation? Seems kind of silly, doesn't it? Yet in our world, you're having these network types try to dictate to the engineers what they should be doing with their own equipment. And that's just patently wrong.
1: We've established that networking folks are perhaps imposing themselves or their ideas On to the engineering people, Um, we've established that OT is not perhaps the best term for what we're talking about in engineering systems. I'd like some clarification on this point. Is the problem with how we're defining OT, or is the problem with how the people in charge of these systems are being shut out?
0: Yes, and it's the second. It's really the second, okay? The real concern is the people who are responsible for the equipment we're trying to protect aren't involved, and you can call it whatever you want, but they have to be involved.
2: You know, Nate. Um, to some people, Joe's a controversial figure. He's said some some controversial things over the years, but you know what he just said rings perfectly true. I mean, this is brilliant. He's you know, there's there's a reason he's a pioneer. There's a reason that. That uh, people look up to him. Um, I've heard nobody else make the distinction as clearly as he just did. Um, you absolutely have to get the engineers involved, and you have to recognize that they're part of the network, however much of it. Wherever you draw the line, and you're going to draw a line, wherever you draw the line between OT and engineering, you got to draw it somewhere, and you got to give the engineering piece of it to the engineers. And you know, you can't you can't draw that line at the very bottom because you know. Part of the network must be managed to engineering principles. So, um, you know, this is this is brilliant.
1: Great. Now, for my next line of questioning for Joe, I brought it back to the original subject of Aurora. I want us to keep in mind everything he just said as he answers the following: What should the owners and operators of the grid be doing to address the Aurora risk? Should it be more relays, better cyber protections for those relays? Are relays even enough?
0: No, they, Aurora is a funny animal because Aurora, the only thing that makes Aurora cyber is the remote connectivity, okay? Aurora is a physical phenomenon. So if you put in the hardware to isolate the grid when you detect these Aurora conditions, Aurora is no longer a problem period. It just went away. Unlike all other cyber, you know, communication things that will forever be there and you're always in this, you know, whack-a-mole situation. Okay. So there is a solution for Aurora. There has been for 12 years now. Now, what Aurora is, is also one other thing. It is a type of vulnerability that is associated with manipulating physics. There are many others like that. It just turned out that's what Idaho used in order to show that you could cause kinetic damage. This is why you've got to have the engineers involved, is these are physics problems. These are engineering problems.
1: As we alluded to earlier, following Aurora, the DOD was trying to give away free protective relay equipment to basically anybody who'd take it. Um, Can you give us the rest of that story now? How did that effort work out?
0: It turns out that none, you know, zero of the major electric utilities were willing to do that. And as best as I can tell, the reason was going back to that NERC. Advisory the utilities the major utilities did not want to have any of their relays declared critical critical cyber assets. so there were a grand total of two utilities, two, that were willing to work with DoD and install these devices and it turns out both of them were so small, they had no NERC critical cyber assets, and they did it because they thought it was the right thing to do. So
1: the fix is a piece of hardware.
2: In all honesty, Nate, I really don't know. Back in 2008, 2009, I was busy building the world's first industrial SEM at Industrial Defender, and I had personally only started to engage with the, the larger industrial security community, so so I was only watching the Aurora stuff in the news when it was happening. Now, the reading that I did to prepare for this podcast, that reading did suggest to me that that some of the utilities took the position that if they strengthened their remote access controls... Then the attackers would not be able to log into the substation or the generating equipment. They would not be able to trigger the Aurora vulnerability. What I can say is that years later, I remember asking security managers at electric utilities about Aurora. I remember them answering that they had it covered. You know, Were they thinking the remote access was strong enough? Were they thinking something else? I don't know they would not give me uh, the, the, the details. Um, but to give you another data point, only a month ago, this is after we recorded Joe's part of the podcast, but uh, before you and I sat down for this commentary, um, I ran into a couple of protection engineers at a training event that I was helping with. So I asked them about Aurora, knowing that you know we were on the topic here. I got back blank stares, they they didn't know what i was talking about so i explained the whole aurora test and the video and the synchronization thing and i asked again and they said yeah yeah they've they've seen nothing you know they they understood the scenario but they said they have seen nothing specific for this problem you know they don't they don't do anything specific for this problem they did say that maybe the overcurrent relays would kick in and would isolate the generator before the damage was done, you know. And Joe did say that the out-of-phase condition, that is, aurora, um, would have resulted in high currents producing the high torque. It's the current that produces the torque. So, uh, you know, maybe an overcurrent relay would kick in fast enough to protect the generator. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not a protection engineer. And to be fair, these engineers that I were talking uh, that I was talking to. Um, they were focused on substations, not generators. Um, nonetheless, the fact that they had not even heard of the uh, the the scenario, um, you know, is is not a situation that that I would describe as I don't know comforting.
1: All right, Joe. So I'm a lazy person. Can you give the lazy person's answer to the problems that we're talking about? Could we say that more relays? Might be a quick fix to the Aurora problem? Or is it that we really need a whole entire shift in the culture as to how we bring engineers in to solve these security problems?
0: For Aurora, very specifically Aurora, you put in the Aurora hardware mitigation, Aurora goes away, period. Okay? Not anything else, Aurora. Okay? There is a fix. There has been a fix since, you know, like I say, roughly mid-summer 2007. There is no reason the utilities should not be doing that. Now, there are other problems besides Aurora. But the irony is that one would go away. They've chosen not to do that.
1: You know, a couple times now you've sort of lobbed it up that we've had this solution for many years now. And then I was waiting for the serve. And I didn't quite hear it. So can you now sum up for our listeners, in as short a span as possible, what the fundamental fix you're talking about is?
0: The fix is a hardware device. It is, in a sense, a isolated relay that was designed to detect the aurora conditions and when it detects them, to isolate the grid so aurora can occur. And it turns out, I just found out, the company that basically developed it has basically discontinued it because nobody would buy it.
1: So the fix is a piece of hardware.
2: Yes, this is certainly what Joe maintains. The Cooper relay he mentioned watches for the out of phase condition and the relay trips a breaker when it sees the condition. This protects the electric generator, it protects the electric motor, it protects rotating equipment from damage. The relay does this no matter whether the physical condition was the result of sabotage or was the result of of simple human error or or anything, really. And the relay is a little unusual. It is like other relays in that the, the Cooper relay has a CPU and it runs software. It is unlike other relays in that the Cooper CPU has no communications hardware, no serial ports, no Ethernet port, which means the thing cannot be hacked. Well, at least not hacked remotely. There is no communications mechanism that would let any remote attacker, you know, someone sipping coffee in an office in Iran or North Korea, there's there's no mechanism that would let a remote attacker on the other side of the Internet reach into the device and tamper with it. Now, these attackers could still tamper with other stuff in the grid, but if the physical Aurora condition was ever detected, the Cooper Relay would trip the breaker.
1: Okay, so... You're talking about this this hardware not being connected, and I I imagine even if it's not connected to a network, it is connected to this equipment, which is connected to other equipment, which may be connected to the network. Is there not a causal chain there whereby somehow this technically is, quote unquote, connected?
2: That's a good question. Um, Joe used the word isolated in two different contexts. He talked about isolating the uh, protective relay from the network which means not connecting it to a network. Um, he also used the word to mean isolate a generator or an engine from the grid uh, by using the relay to uh, protect that, that physical device from damage. Um, in the second sense of the word, can you isolate things from the grid? Yes. Um, in particular, we're concerned with generators and engines. Generally, in my understanding, there's only one connection between the generator and the grid or between an engine and the grid. And so you put a relay in there, you trip the breaker, and of course uh, you've isolated that tiny little piece of the grid, which is the power plant or the the, the site that's using the power from the grid. Um, that's the way that these relays are, are typically used. They're typically not used, in my understanding, or not proposed in the, the mesh of the grid to try and, and isolate large portions of the grid from each other. That, that's not really the scenario. The scenario is protecting the generator or the engines.
1: Now that we're here today where we are, can you give us a sense of how protected the grid is at this very moment against the Aurora threat and similar threats?
0: Unprotected.
1: Perhaps you could expand, maybe give us a gradient 1 to 10?
0: Zero. (laughs) Okay. We did a demo at my old conference, I think it was in 2015. It turns out Schweitzer also makes a protective relay called the 751A for A being Aurora. I had a young engineer with absolutely no Protective relay experience. And and within hours, he was able to totally compromise the 751A. Within hours. So he was able to turn the Aurora mitigation device into the Aurora initiation device. I was going to say one, one last thing. The Russians, as well as the Chinese, I'm just telling you the ones I know of who know all of this, are well aware of Aurora. What happened in the Ukraine, the Russians, when they cyber attacked the Ukraine in both times, remotely opened the breaker, step one of Aurora. They chose, and I use that word chose, not to reclose those breakers, chose. That's why the outages were one to six hours and not six months and an act of war.
2: Did I mention that a lot of people consider Joe to be a controversial figure? A grade of zero protection. Zero protection in spite of literally, I think, billions of dollars spent on cybersecurity in the power grid in the last decade. But if we think about Joe's answer in the right way, to me, it makes sense. What Joe's been taking through this entire interview is an engineering point of view in the engineering point of view his answer makes perfect sense an engineer thinking about protecting a generator from out of phase conditions that engineer doesn't care if the condition is caused by cyber sabotage or by human error or by anything else an engineer points at the network diagram and says you need another relay right there and you know, the example he followed up with, uh, you know, the junior engineer hacking the Schweitzer, uh, what was it, the 751A? Well, the difference between the Schweitzer Aurora relay and the Cooper Aurora relay is that the Schweitzer relay accepts remote communications, and so it can be hacked remotely. The Cooper does not and cannot. To me, what Joe is calling out here is the essence of his Layer 0, Layer 1 argument. I mean, today, protection engineers deploy relays to protect against random problems. You know, lightning strikes or trees blowing on the power lines. You know, I'm thinking about what Joe's just said here. I'm thinking maybe we don't see a lot of Aurora relays deployed because... Historically, there have not been a lot of, of out-of-sync conditions, you know, connections to the grid that have damaged equipment. So not a lot compared to, say, lightning strikes. But if I understand him, this is Joe's point. I think he's saying that protection engineers and other engineers, but, you know, I think he's saying protection engineers need to get involved in defending against the very nastiest of possible cyber attacks, attacks with unacceptable physical consequences today we generally let the it guys worry about those attacks in this sense i very much agree with joe i think protection engineers very much need to get involved with the it guys protection engineers need to start designing physical systems that can prevent the consequences of let's say cyber hurricanes not just physical hurricanes Protection engineers need to get involved in the very nastiest of cyber stuff as well.
1: Can you explain technically why that makes such a difference, closing and not closing?
0: When you open a relay, all you do is you stop the current, the lights go out. Okay, that's what happened. What Aurora is, essentially reclosing that breaker, but doing it out of phase. So the sine waves are not right on top of each other. They're out of phase with each other. And that's what causes this torque and current spike are these out-of-phase sine waves. The reason the electric industry has what are called sync scopes, synchronization scopes, is to make sure that when you bring equipment back up that they're synchronized with the grid. That's why you do that. So you don't cause major damage. And by the way, it doesn't have to be malicious or intentional. One of the impetuses for IEEE looking at out-of-phase condition was all the way back in the late 40s, the Tennessee Valley Authority had an out-of-phase condition with one of the hydro turbines And the power was such that that turbine blew through the turbine, you know, through the walls of the turbine building, and they found parts of it more than a mile away. Now, this was in the late 40s, obviously not cyber, but this is what the out-of-phase condition will do. So the IEEE has always known out-of-phase is an issue. All Aurora did is said, we can maliciously cause this known out-of-phase problem.
1: Okay, so the Russians and the Chinese are up on this. Obviously, there are malicious actors out there who are interested in tampering with the U.S. grid. I'm thinking, you know, recently about the Triton-Trisis folks. Have you seen any evidence over the past dozen years since the Aurora test that there are malicious actors out there probing this vulnerability already?
0: Well, what I can tell you is, before Aurora even began, the Chinese were writing about it. DHS, I believe it was in 2015, declassified 800 or so pages on Aurora. This is on hacker websites. This isn't something that isn't already known. The Russians have been in our electric grid since at least 2014. The Chinese have been playing around with our grids for a long while. So the point is, they both know what's there. It's not a matter of them saying we can't do that. They know they're in.
1: And what kind of damage are we looking at? Should the bad guys figure this out before the good guys do?
0: Yeah, uh, You can bring the grid down wherever you've got these pieces of equipment that are connected for like 9 to 18 months because you're breaking generators, transformers, you know, motors, things that are have maybe a 9 to 12-month lead cycle to manufacture. And a lot of this isn't even made in the U.S. anymore. And what's more, I'll give you a funny example. The Arizona Public Service Company had transformer fail in the middle of the uh, western Arizona desert. Okay, This had nothing to do with Aurora or anything else. It was a failed transformer. And they ordered a new transformer from overseas, and it came into the port of L.A. Long Beach. It's about, if you drove it by car, maybe six hours from the port of L.A. Long Beach, to this transformer in the western Arizona desert. It took a truck about two weeks to get there. Why? The transformer was so big it wouldn't go under any of the bridges on I-10. And I'll give you another one. When I was at the um, Naval War College two years ago, there was a truck carrying a large generator that was sitting on the side of the road in Rhode Island. It had been there for about a week or so. It turns out that load was so big, it couldn't go on any of the bridges in the state of Rhode Island. This is what was written in the Boston Globe. So not only is it going to take a very long time to make these, if they're coming from China, you got to ask what's in them. And then you got to figure out how in the world to get them to where they need to go. And we're talking about getting them on a onesie, twosie basis, not what happens if you need 20 or 50 or 100.
1: By the time our listeners can hear this, what I'm about to say will be very outdated. But um, I spoke with Joe in the middle of the week, and only a few days later... My hometown of New York City, specifically the area of Manhattan where I grew up, experienced a blackout for a few hours on, I think it was a Friday or a Saturday night. You know, I think that when I was talking to Joe and he says things like six days, six hours versus like six to nine months, you hear that and you go, wow, that that seems like a big issue. And then you continue on doing whatever you were doing. But then when I actually walked through that area of Manhattan, it sort of... It gives perspective to what he's talking about, because even just three hours without power in the middle of July was kind of a mini disaster. And and it very much felt like the Russians had attacked us in that moment as I was sort of walking down the streets. You know, everybody was outside. The whole city was very dark. And then I was I was at 66th Street on the west side. And then they all came up at once And everybody started clapping and laughing and smiling, and it was all fun. And it sort of just gave a real sense of what could be the consequence of exactly the kind of thing that Joe's talking about. Because nine months without power in New York City would be absolutely, you know, the end of the world. Even three hours in New York City without power seemed like it was the end of the world.
2: Well, Nate, there is a widespread consensus that a, a large population center with no electric power at all for weeks or months is is a very big problem. Um, you know, in a modern society without electric power, you can't pump gas, you can't refrigerate food, you have a very hard time shipping food into the center you know, of the, of the population center and, and distributing the food. You can't pump water for people to drink, you can't pump water for people to flush their toilets. I mean, there may be backup generators for individual homes or maybe hospitals or something but most of the population most of industry has no backup generators. But does everything we've heard today mean that you know we're at imminent risk of a a, a grid failure apocalypse? Well, experts disagree. You know, like Joe I very much agree that the grid needs to be better protected. I agree that engineering considerations need to be better represented in our cybersecurity plans going forward. But, but I don't think an apocalypse is just around the corner. What I think is that, you know, a grid apocalypse kind of attack is too close for comfort. We can never rule out an attack like that. You know, nothing is secure. Security is a continuum, not a binary state. We can always be more secure. We can always be less secure. I think we need to be more secure. Uh, I think that electric utilities, I think the entire industrial security community, we all need to do more and need to do differently than we have been doing in order to defeat a serious attack on the power grid much more reliably than we do now. I think we need, you know, the, the question is not, are we secure? The question is partly how secure are we? The real question is how secure should we be? I think we're not there yet. I think we need to be quite a bit more secure than we are now.
1: Joe, the time has come. I'd like now to give you an opportunity for the last word.
0: The Control system Cybersecurity Program first started in 2000 for the electric industry, this is what I was doing at EPRI, Electric Power Research Institute. It was all about trying to keep lights on and water flowing. It was an engineering issue worried about making sure lights stayed on. Well, it has now transformed into not trying to keep lights on. It's now transformed into trying to keep networks up, and that has to change. One of the things that the Ukrainian cyber attack showed is the Ukrainians ran their grids for probably six to nine months after that cyber attack, manually, no networks, why they couldn't trust them. We had better figure out how to be able to run our systems without networks. It's almost back to the future because if not we're in a big world of hurt and the only way that's going to occur is if the engineers become part of this process and and one last point how in the world can we be talking about this for the first time in 2019 isn't that a damning statement
2: My thoughts on Joe's last words? Well, I'm very happy that we had Joe on the show. IT, OT, engineering. What Joe's ideas suggest to me is this. Think about it. Security in IT networks is focused primarily, not exclusively, but primarily on business risks, privacy lawsuits, fraud prevention, intellectual property theft. To deal with those risks, IT networks protect the information. Security in OT networks is focused primarily on the risk of shutdowns. Um, keep the lights on. Keep gasoline coming out of the refinery. Keep dr- you know drinking water flowing. OT networks protect the information, just like IT does, but uh, the priorities are different. We've all heard this. The priorities on IT networks are CIA, confidentiality, integrity, and availability, in that order. The priority on OT networks where downtime is the big risk, the priority is AIC, availability first. We've, we've all heard this. Here's the new bit. Engineering risk management is focused primarily on preventing unacceptable physical consequences. Plant downtime is the least consequential of those unacceptable consequences. Engineers have much bigger fish to fry. Preventing equipment damage is a higher priority, preventing worker casualties is an even higher priority, preventing public safety threats and environmental disasters is the highest priority. The engineering discipline, the engineering perspective is not about protecting information, it's about protecting physical operations, protecting operations from information because all information can encode attacks. The tricky bit is this, physical downtime for an industrial process or for a power plant, is also a physical outcome, isn't it? So where do we draw the line between engineering and OT? That's a very important question. But I did not know to ask that question before I heard Joe speaking here on the podcast. So um, thank you, Joe. And thank you, Nate, for interviewing Joe.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast. I'd like to thank Joe Weiss for sitting down with me, and I'd like to thank you, Andrew, for sitting down with me.
2: My pleasure. I'll uh, catch you later, Nate.
1: This has been, once again, the Industrial Security Podcast. I'll see you all next time.